to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Hello, my name is Bonnie Jenkins, and I am the founder and executive director of Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation, or WCAPS. You're about to hear a discussion that took place on May 14, 2020, which is the launch of our New York chapter. The discussion is leading during COVID-19, What About Women of Color? And you're about to hear from Cheryl Stedman, who is the co-chair of our new New York branch. And opportunities specific to our area, which is awesome. But most importantly, Jacqueline and I look forward to engaging with each of you in the future and strongly encourage you to join us in making WCAPS New York successful. We want to help make it a chapter where you continue to receive valuable and relevant information for your career, whether you're just launching into it, you are a seasoned veteran, or you are embarking upon something totally new. We want WCAPS New York to be a catalyst. And SAM New York and its uniqueness, we are curious to know about the audience today. So we, I think, are going to conduct a very quick poll that we've created, uh, which should appear on the screen any moment now, which will just ask a quick question as to where you are. So please take a few moments to uh, take a few seconds to answer. Okay. Well, while the poll is continuing, I will go ahead and hand it off to my co-chair, Jacqueline Tran. Thanks so much, uh, Cheryl, and thanks so much, Bonnie, and um, for having us here and um, for creating such a wonderful uh, organization that is truly um, a powerhouse of amazing uh, leaders and change makers. Um, and thank you all so much for being with us here tonight. We really appreciate you joining us. Um, so my name is Jacqueline Tran, and I also co-chair the WCAP New York chapter with Cheryl. Um, I also am a researcher at Gilded Dragon Howe Growth Investment Firm in New York. Um, today we're going to be talking about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and specifically how it um, plays into um, the lives of women of color specifically. And just to give you a backdrop, the, um, as you all know, the COVID-19 pandemic is inflicting a lot of high and rising costs to humans worldwide um, throughout the course of this virus um, and has really exposed the inadequacies and inequalities driven forth um, by our government. Um, and um, by our systems that have, uh, have been exposed more than ever before. Um, economically disadvantaged people are losing their jobs and cannot afford to put food on their tables. Uh, domestic abuse victims are being forced into self-quarantine into households with their abusers. Misinformation is on the, is on the rise um, and is spreading a lot of um, interesting things about the virus and health precautions. Um, and these already existing social issues that we see in which women of color are most vulnerable are being exacerbated at an unprecedented level um, under this pandemic. So under this backdrop of tragedy, as we see, there is still um, opportunity. And 
I believe that where there is peril, there is also a possibility. So could this be a moment to jump at the opportunity and sculpt the sustainable future that we want? Uh, what does the other side of this moment of history look like and how do we get there? So those are really big questions um, and jumping so far into those questions about the future, I think it's very important for us to understand the now, the way the pandemic is unfolding uh, through the lens of health and technology and policy. But more importantly, it is crucial to understand how this moment of history is affecting the most vulnerable and women of color and why grounded in the specific issues that we will hear today, diversity and leadership is fundamental for moving forward into a better future. So we are so excited and so thrilled to welcome our guests here tonight, um, hailing from a range of different backgrounds, which we will introduce in more detail before they speak. Um, just to give you guys a sense of what our schedule will be for tonight, um, we're going to start with Miriam Saifu, who is a women's rights activist um, and a long-term U.S. diplomat. And then we're going to move on to Ana Sofia Debrito, who is a certified nurse midwife at Broxton Neighborhood Health Center. Uh, Amarita Torres, Director of Policy Research and Programs at the Sufon Center. Jamila White, who is Senior Africa Representative at Mercy Corps. And finally, Joanne Michelle Ocampo, uh, doctor, uh, doctor of Public Health student at Columbia University and formerly an advisor uh, at the Norwegian Institute of Public Health. So um, following the uh, session that we will have, we're going to open it up for a brief Q&A. And so um, we would just like to ask you that you please wait until the end um, to have your questions answered. And um, after that, um, in lieu of the sort of mix and mingling that we would normally do um, in an in-person event and happy hour, we're going to break up into uh, randomized small uh, discussion groups for you all um, in case you want to share any of the sort of um, uh, moments of inspiration or ideas that you might have. And um, that will be that will be the conclusion. Of course, we'll open it up and, and leave it open for everyone so that they can discuss as they wish until around 8 p.m. So with that, um, the results from the WCAP um, poll just came in. Um, I think that's it. I've shared it with you all. Majority from the city. I think most of you are from the state, or some of you are from the state. Very interesting. Thank you for thank you for voting. Appreciate it. Um, with that, I'll introduce Miriam. Um, Miriam Zephy is a career U.S. diplomat, speaking in her personal capacity, and her views do not necessarily reflect her institutional affiliations. Miriam has worked at the intersection between policy and advocacy for over a decade and her foreign service postings include in Cairo, Baghdad, Erbil, Lahore, with domestic assignments in the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues and Secretary Office, Secretary's Office of Religion and Global Affairs. She recently completed the Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellowship, where she advised the Human Rights Foundation, a network of dissidents and citizen journalists from primarily authoritarian regimes. Miriam also served in the Peace Corps in Jordan, as well as an AmeriCorps volunteer in Seattle, where she worked with survivors of domestic violence. And as a survivor of female genital mutilation uh, herself, she has become a leading voice in advocacy movement to end um, female genital mutilation, both domestically and globally. Um, tonight, she will be speaking on, about the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 pandemic on Black and Brown communities, 
and the need to build more inclusive leadership pipelines for women of color so that they are more at the forefront shaping the policies that affect them. And her focus is going to be specifically about gender-based violence. So thank you so much. And Miriam, I will hand it over to you. Thanks, Jacqueline. Um, and thanks to Ambassador Jenkins and the team for putting on this critically important conversation. Um, I'm gonna focus my presentation on three sort of areas. The first, um, how does the pandemic impact gender-based violence survivors broadly? Second, why are women of color disproportionately impacted? And finally, what can we do about this? So first I'll start by defining gender-based violence itself. Gender-based violence is any act that is perpetrated against a person's will and is based on gender norms and unequal power relationships. So ultimately, gender-based violence is about power and it's about control. It's important to underscore that gender-based violence happens everywhere. It transcends race, religion, geography, gender, and class. In the context of COVID-19, we are seeing the global calls uh, to shelter in place um, to protect us also is being used as a mechanism, sort of a tool in the toolbox for perpetrator to exert more power and at the same time, increase control over their victims. So for this reason, the uh, impact of COVID-19 on gender-based violence is being called a double pandemic. Uh, these are two crises compounding one another. In the context of domestic violence, for example, shelters where survivors could seek refuge are now often full or in some cases are being repurposed as COVID-19 health response uh, uh, facilities. Um, and the typical safety nets, uh, uh, legal aid clinics, crisis centers, food banks, and other support structures are now hyperextended uh, and unable to keep up with the demand. With issues like female genital mutilation, something I've worked on for closely for a few years, this means more girls are at risk of being cut. UNFPA announced a reduction in their FGM prevention programs by a third. Um, so this means um, they're estimating an additional 2 million girls will undergo FGM. Uh, and as a survivor of FGM myself, that means an additional 2 million childhoods destroyed. The same goes for child marriage. The UN anticipates an additional 13 million child marriages to take place over the next decade. The drastic funding cuts and lack of resources to address these issues, which were already incredibly complex, will mean uh, a rollback in progress, and um, especially if we're looking at the 2030 Sustainable Development Goal benchmarks. Before the pandemic, uh, the global cost of violence against women, the UN had estimated at $1.5 trillion. This will inevitably increase if we don't respond to this pandemic within a pandemic. So the next question I'll, I'll address is, why are women of color disproportionately impacted? Uh, the answer to this is, is largely rooted in the ecosystem itself. COVID-19 has exposed deep-rooted structural inequalities globally, and in the context of the United States, we are seeing racial inequity hardwired into every single institution. Women of color, particularly in the United States, are frontline essential workers in industries like healthcare, domestic work, and hospitality. Many are living paycheck to paycheck. Some are undocumented, living in fear. And many just don't have the luxury uh, or means to find an alternative shelter if they are dealing with an abusive situation at home. So if COVID-19 and gender-based violence constitute a double pandemic, I would argue we're adding an intersectional lens uh, that includes race and gender. Uh, it compounds it further into a triple pandemic. So finally, what can be done? You know, how can we take some actionable concrete steps to address this? We definitely need to invest more resources. 
uh, build the critical infrastructure and prioritize issue, these issues in particular, both in terms of policy and in activating coordinated donor response. But I, I would say that's more of a band-aid. Uh, it doesn't get to the root cause of the issue. If we're gonna solve these problems, we need more women of color, more survivors of gender-based violence actually at the policy-making table. It's not enough that they validate initiatives or are held up as props at high-level speaking engagements, um, which we often see. They need to be inside the rooms where decisions are being made, shaping, uh, shaping policy responses in substantive ways. Last week, Bridgespan and Echoing Green released a study that 92% of foundation presidents and 83% of full-time staff in the United States are white. I mean, just 92%, that's a huge number. Um, so these are the folks that are kind of leading in philanthropy. Yet, um, and in addition, the State Department, uh, about in, I think in March, the Government Accountability Office released a study, the number of African-American women at the, inside the State Department uh, was at 2% in 2002. It only went up to 3% by 2016. So we have this huge demographic sort of disconnect. Um, we need to bridge the disconnect between gatekeepers of policy and resources, so not just policy, but also in the philanthropic community and the private sector, with the populations that are most affected. And we're seeing this now with, with the impact uh, that COVID has highlighted, some of these fault lines. Groups like uh, WCAPS, Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, I believe are critical in reimagining a future where we have a more inclusive policy infrastructure so that ultimately, whatever you know, post-pandemic new normal that we, that, uh, we come out of that we achieve will be more just and more equitable for all. Thank you. Thank you so much, Miriam. That was, those numbers were astounding. Um, uh, and um, it's a really wonderful transition that we're gonna have now to, you know, thinking about this in context. Uh, we're gonna transition to Anna Sophia Dorito, who's going to be talking more about Sort of what that looks like on the front line um, specifically in women's health. Um, so a little bit of background about Anna. She is um, a certified nurse midwife with a master's in nursing from Yale University um, and as a midwife she's been interested in serving marginalized women and fighting for reproductive justice. Um, her goals uh, are to individually impact women of color and especially black women uh, and their experiences with medicalized birth world by bringing midwifery um, to spaces that traditionally do not have midwives um, and working with uh, this population. So she currently works at Brockton Neighborhood Health Center and serves low-income immigrant and other diverse um, populations. And she is also a board member of the Cape uh, Verdean Nurses Association. Today she's going to be talking about sort of the health, healthcare administrator's response um, to COVID and the impact that it's had on the staff members, on clinical providers, uh, community members and especially women of color, and um, and also just about the health inequities and the slow, inadequate responses that have been taking place um, that have allowed COVID to sort of spread like wildfire. So um, with that, I'll hand it over to Anna. Hi everyone. Um, I'm hoping you can hear me well, and thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be a part of this, even though I live in Rhode Island and work in Massachusetts, and I'm nowhere near New York City right now. <laughs> so this is great, the digital launch. So um, like my introduction said, I do want to sort of give context on the microcosm level of um, working with patients and one-on-one -on -one interactions and being in the community while uh, COVID-19 um, is 
ravaging uh, Brockton, Massachusetts. But first, I want to give a little context. So I work in a federally qualified health center um, and a community hospital where we do the births in a town of about 95,000 people. And it's the second hot spot in the state of Massachusetts. So about 42% of Brockton um, community members are Black or African American. And most of these uh, folks are from Cape Verde, which is an island off the west coast of Africa, and um, Haiti. And uh, the rest are, 39% are white, but that white is white identify uh, Latinx. So a lot of Brazilians, a lot of Ecuadorians, a lot of um, Guatemalans, and the whole rest of the percentage are Asian and Native American or multiracial. So the city um, is very uh, low income and many people are undocumented and many folks are underinsured and um, many, many live in um, multifamily homes uh, because the rent is so high. So Brockton, to give a geographical context, is a little bit away from Boston, about uh, 25 minutes to 30 minutes. And so a lot of people commute into Boston and work there. And so most of my patients are essential workers. They're your janitorial staff. They're um, the, the nannies. They are the people who work in the fast food industry. Um, they are factory workers. So uh, the community has been impacted greatly. Um, and they're commuters too. So they go into Boston where the first little hot spot started right and from the conference and then they brought the virus to Brockton um, and the the community has been paralyzed uh, so far there have been 3,400 and some odd number of confirmed cases, which is vastly underestimated because we are not doing mass testing. Sort of very uh, similar to New York in terms of not doing generalized testing to get the real numbers. But of course, New York has much higher numbers. Um, and 205 deaths. And our population is very, very sick. Uh, a lot of our patients have comorbidities, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity. Um, all of that has sort of created this, this little pandemic in our, our little town. Um, and most of my patients, because I am in OBGYN, well, I should say many, are women identifying and 95% and of them are women of color. Um, and unfortunately, they've been the hardest hit. So a lot of them, um, like it's already been mentioned, uh, they live paycheck to paycheck. They work minimum wage jobs. Um, they don't get compensated for the work that they do. They, uh, and it's, it's just been really tough on them. A lot of them are at home. A lot of them are pregnant, so they'd rather not risk it because we don't know how the virus affects pregnant people. And a lot of them actually work in healthcare. They're your certified nurse assistants, your CNAs, if they have education, and they've all gotten sick. All of my patients who work as CNAs have gotten sick because the organizations don't protect them, haven't given them masks, haven't given them anything to sort of um, a, keep the virus from the patients that they take care of who are mostly elderly and the ones that are impacted by the virus. Uh, and, and it's sad. But not only speaking about the community, um, in my small clinic and community hospital, uh, the nursing force uh, is very white. 
it's a very, very, very white profession, um, especially midwifery. Even though midwifery were in this country were mainly black women in the South, um, after they imposed sort of education restrictions and all of that, they, uh, they sort of pushed black mid midwives to the fringes and, and it became vastly white and it still is. Um, in my small clinic, uh, we have 10 midwives and three of them are of color. Um, I'm the only one that speaks the languages that the community speaks besides Haitian Creole. I do, um, and so that helps with the language barrier as well. And of the 10 doctors or 12 doctors that we work with, five are women of color. So it's pretty great. The diversity is better with the medical um, doctor team. But even so, uh, when COVID-19 occurred, a lot of us clinicians, we we saw this coming, right? So we, we had the expertise. We we knew what a pandemic is. We understand just a little bit of public health because public health, unfortunately, is the stepsister in the healthcare world, right? Um, and so we asked, we, we said, okay, we need to shut down. We need to shut down the clinic. We need to just provide essential services. We need to change our protocols, our policies, everything. And the most vocal people were the women of color. Um, we were told that we were being dramatic that we were inciting panic and that we needed to calm down. And, you know, <laughs> haven't we heard that before um, when we bring up or voice our concerns? And so it, I understand that healthcare in this country is all about money and, and the revenue is important to keep the clinics open. But it was it was so disheartening to just not be listened to and 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 feeling like I was a raving lunatic as I was asking our um, CEO who is a white woman and my chief medical officer who is a white woman and the other one is a white male um, to just really listen like listen the community was panicking people were going out of control um, not coming to their visits because they they heard that the virus is at the clinic you know so sort of sort of crazy and. And that really showed um, how much uh, women in organizations like this are not listened to, uh, how much women of color are really not listened to. And even when you do have the expertise and you're, and you're saying like, listen, like look what's happening in the other half of the world right now, like it's gonna come to us, it, it's still, it was so hard. Besides the biggest challenges that you all have heard about getting personal protective equipment and hospital beds and treatment for COVID-19, I thought the biggest um, challenge were the people in charge of the policies did not represent the community and did not represent the clinicians on top of that too. So um, the CEO doesn't have a clinical background uh, and she doesn't see patients every day. Um, and I'm speaking specifically for federally qualified health centers in other community healthcare areas, but we do have to give a voice to the stepsister of healthcare, like I said, which is public health. Um, and we need to sort of get women of color, especially in healthcare, to take initiative and become CEOs of these clinics and hospitals, become the policy makers. Um, I don't want to group all women of color into this monolith of shared experiences because that is not true, right? So we all come from different places and when, as a black woman, um, I have a certain set of privilege and someone else who's Latinx or, or all of that um, comes into it. But um, we do need women of color 
to be uh, the leaders of these institutions and clinics and hospitals. And we need them to be representative of their community or, or the patients that they serve and be able to adapt and understand to these community needs. Um, especially, for example, just the hesitancy of the Black population to go to the clinic. Or when you're making a drive through tents to get tested for COVID-19, think about that a little bit. When half of your patient population don't have cars, how can they drive through the tent? They can't. And you won't take them if they walk up. So how can they get testing? It just makes no sense. Um, and, and it's sort of like a, oh, yeah, duh, moment when you bring it up to the people who made these, these rules and these policies. And it, it just baffles me that no one thinks about them. Um, so that's what I'm dealing with on, on I, I guess, the one-on-one the -on -one, uh, situation. I'm not in somewhere making policies, but I'm dealing with what the policies are creating. And it's been pretty tough. Wow, thank you so much for sharing. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to see how policies are sort of manifested and the effects that are sort of manifested on the ground um, as you have sort of described. Um, and also just the importance of um, the ability to listen um, for leadership to be able to listen and with empathy and understand that um, um, that there is more knowledge beyond just their own experiences. Um, so thank you so much for sharing. Um, our next panelist is going to be Amarita Torres. Um, she's going to be talking a little bit more about um, misinformation, disinformation. Uh, Amrita is a director is the director of policy research and programs at the Sufan Center. Uh, a global strategy center focused on increasing awareness of security issues in the United States and around the world. She has over a decade of experience as a former U.S. diplomat where she developed and coordinated policy and programs on human rights, conflict prevention, counterterrorism, and development in South Asia, Latin America, and Africa. Amrita is an advocate for diversity and inclusion in the public policy space and served as a mentor for incoming diplomats of color and guest lecturer to students. She holds an MPP or Master's in Public Policy from Harvard Kennedy School and a Bachelor of Arts in History from New York University. Um, she's also a chair member of the Council on Foreign Relations, an alum of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, an alum of the New Leaders Council and the U.S.-Spain Young Leaders Program, amongst a host of other things. Um, and tonight what she's going to discuss um, is um, what she and her team do at the Sufan Center, um, specifically about mis- and disinformation, and how uh, mis- and disinformation is playing out in the coronavirus, um, and how it is disproportionately affecting communities of color, uh, particularly the Black community, and how um, these conspiracy theories that are being are, are being spread um, and perpetuating myths about communities of color um, and the virus. Um, so, with that, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you so much. Um, thanks, everyone. What a pleasure to be in this uh, great company. And already the speakers have been amazing, so I'm learning a lot myself. So um, yeah, so I'm the director at the Sufan Center. We are focused on identifying trend lines before they become fault lines in the area of global security. So from terrorism and counterterrorism to the nexus between security and humanitarian issues. to most recently, uh, we've been focused on the white supremacist threat both in the United States and around the world, and the proliferation of, of modern disinformation. So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the, infodemic, the infodemic um, that we're facing right now with respect to the health pandemic 
So the coronavirus is a pandemic for the World Health Organization. It's a global health crisis, right? We see that via the spread of the virus, how many people are dying, how many people are sick, right? But it's also an infodemic um, because there's so much false information being spread, uh, being thrown at people in multiple directions because everyone has a smartphone and many, many people have access to the internet. There's a proliferation of disinformation, which is meant to intentionally mislead you, as well as misinformation, which may be wrong, is wrong, but is not necessarily intentioned to, to mislead you. And then there's even missing information where you're not getting the full picture of a story. Um, and so the coronavirus pandemic has created an environment ripe for mis and disinformation campaigns to such an extent that we're seeing a disinformation superhighway fueled by multiple lanes. Um, so there's disparate narratives that are converging and feeding off of each other into something that's pretty unprecedented. For example, narratives uh, including anti-5G, anti-vaccination, big pharma, anti-immigrant, anti-Chinese, anti-Asian rhetoric that is being spread, including false narratives around uh, how to protect yourself from the virus, what you should take from the virus. You have public leaders in the United States um, spreading false uh, and, and dis and misinformation. So that, that's part of my discussion. Um, but I also want to talk about, and I think that the two earlier speakers also raised this about the racial and ethnic element of this. This is also, and the gender element of this. This is also um, what I would call, and another uh, leader, his name is Ibram Kendi, called this a racial pandemic because it's hitting people of color the hardest uh, while essential workers, health workers, tend to be women, people of color on the front line. So that's something I really wanna um, emphasize in, in my talk. So turning back now to coronavirus as an infodemic, one of the most toxic conspiracy theories that we're hearing is that the spread of coronavirus is a weaponized state-sponsored effort. Um, so for example, the United States apparently created this virus to counter the activities of Iran and China. We're seeing that at, at, at the global level. We're also hearing conspiracy theories that North Korea was responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic, saying that it was an early Christmas gift. Um, so we're seeing all of these theories uh, quite dangerously spreading at an, alarmist, uh, at an alarming speed, right? And this disinformation, these campaigns are intersecting with conspiracy theorists, extremist groups, white supremacists, and rogue state communications um, that are then sort of being repeated within the echo chambers of the internet. And this is fueling um, in the United States, but also around the world, hate and is fueling polarization um, within our society. And who are the victims of this? Um, the victims of this are really ourselves, people of color, minorities, immigrants, anyone who was essentially deemed as other based on your color, your skin, your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your sexual orientation. Um, so I discussed a little bit about who's doing it. We have rogue nations, the leading ones that are um, leading dis and misinformation campaigns around the virus, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran. We also have non-state actors, criminal organizations, white supremacists. Uh, we also have anti-government um, groups that are, for example, pushing for the country to open and pushing against stay-at-home orders so that the economy can open um, at the, at the uh, disadvantage of those that you know, need to stay at home and protect themselves. And you also see public figures doing this. Um, our president is, is spreading uh, myths and disinformation by calling the virus the Wuhan virus. Um, and he is spreading a lot of these conspiracy theories and rhetoric. Um, and he's not dispelling these myths either. And so there's a blame game happening around dis and misinformation and where the virus is spread, from where, who's responsible for it. Um, and I'm gonna talk a little bit now about this blame game and how it's happening even in our communities, communities of color, particularly the black community. Um, there's been a lot of good writing um, from scholars 
um, African-American scholars uh, regarding African-Americans being blamed for dying for this virus. Um, it's, I wanna make this point because it's important. Um, the coronavirus is infecting and killing black people in the United States at disproportionately high rates. It's been talked about before. In counties in the US that are majority black, they have three times the rate of infections and almost six times the rate of deaths as counties where white residents are in the majority. For example, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, we have 70% of the dead who are black, but they only make up 26% of the population. In Louisiana, 70% of the people who have died are black, although African-Americans make up just 32% of the population. And even in New York City, the coronavirus is killing blacks and, and Latinos in New York City at twice the rate that it is killing white people. Um, and the narratives and what you see in the news about this is that communities of color are dying at higher rates because of the underlying illnesses, hypertension, diabetes, asthma, high blood pressure. This is not necessarily untrue, but we're not asking the full picture of questions that we should be asking here. And that's why is this the case? Why is this the case? Um, and it's the state of racial equity and justice in our country that we need to be asking about. Um, we are not asking these questions enough. Um, we know that communities of color and women are at the front lines of addressing this crisis. We know that there are historic systemic structural uh, inequities uh, in, in the United States and around the world. And the coronavirus is, is really putting this out into the light. Um, and for women, I mean, it's, it's hard to find um, numbers and figures for women of color who are on the front lines because we're not collecting this data. Um, we have a lot of, um, uh, Congress people who are demanding this data. Um, we don't have enough of it. We know, for example, 85% of all nurses, 75% of primary caregivers, and 62% of minimum and low wage workers are women. Um, and many of those, many of those are, are women of color. Um, and if we go down to the very local level, um, in the Bronx, for example, where I am from, it's home to the poorest congressional district in the country. We have the highest number of fatalities per 100,000 people and also a very high number, number of individuals of color. And we are the new epicenter of the pandemic. So, you know, we're grappling with here, you know, we have the infodemic, we have the pandemic, the health pandemic, and then we have the racial pandemic. Um, and so my call to action, I think um, the colleagues who already spoke talked about really getting women of color um, in leadership positions so that we can understand and we can pass this information down what we know to make the right decisions. Um, in terms of countering disinformation and misinformation, we have to think before we link. We have to think about what we're reading um, and, and think about how we share it. Think about the objectivity of what we're reading and what we're spreading. We're in the middle of a digital transformation. Everyone has access to the internet. Everyone considers themselves an expert. So we have to really have our own filters um, when we're reading and passing along uh, information. We also need to individually, and I don't, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, um, but we need to make our own commitments to racial and, and ethnic justice and equity. We need to push to collect this data and to collect this information so that we are creating the narrative that should be told, the true narrative around who's dying, who's on the front lines, who's working the hardest to, to get our country back on track. And we need to choose the leaders who are making this commitment. So, you know, we have a lot of elections coming up. We have the presidential, we have local, we have state elections. We need to be asking our leaders to make that commitment to racial and ethnic justice. So I'll leave it there and then I'll, I'll be quiet. Thank you so much. So I see someone clapping down there. <laughs> um, that was really wonderful. Thank you so much um, for a powerful um, talk. Um, we, uh, uh, just for time's sake, we'll have to keep moving. Um, our next speaker is Jamila White. 
Um, she is Senior Africa Representative of Marine Corps, um, and she is also, um, amongst a host of other things, the co-chair of the WCAPS International Development Working Group. Um, she is also co-founder of the Geraldine's and Coleman's A Seat at the Kitchen Table College Scholarship, um, director of One World Exchange, an alumni fellow of the Aspen Institute International Career Advancement Program, and um, Jamila spent most of her career living in West Africa, uh, working on development initiatives in a number of different countries on the continent and uh, for both private sector and NGOs. And so she was also um, on the front lines of the Ebola outbreak and uh, where she had managed the first leg of the response um, during that time. And so we have an extreme privilege to have her here. Um, and Camilla, I'll let you take it over. Thank you so much, uh, Jacqueline, for that great introduction. And good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us. I am joining you all from Washington, D.C., where, where I've been home for about nine weeks. Um, there's been so much that has already been said on COVID-19, so I really just look forward to the discussion. So I'm just going to talk very briefly because I don't want to um, repeat things that have already been said, <clears throat> but I do want to provide a little bit of my reality. Um, you know, one of the things that bothers me so much is when I hear people say COVID-19 is the great equalizer and we're all in the same boat because that's the farthest thing from the truth. We all know we are not in the same boat and COVID-19 is not the great equalizer. COVID-19 didn't expose anything that most of us have not lived every single day of our lives. COVID-19 did not kill Ahmad. Uh, COVID-19 simply exacerbated pre-existing disparities and inequities that we live every single day in this country. COVID-19 hasn't disproportionately affected black and brown people, in my opinion. The racist system in America disproportionately uh, has disproportionately um, affected, intentionally disproportionately affected and excluded and left out black and brown people and poor people in America. So any of us who work in development, who work in poverty, who work in health, who work in any kind of social economic sector, we knew that this would happen. I sent the mayor of Washington DC a letter on March 18th in which Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, I copied her on it. I wanted to copy a lot of local leaders because I was so upset at what was happening in DC. And this was before I locked down. And I basically told the mayor, it was a four page letter, um, and I said, you know, uh, you know, with, with all, all due honor, you're doing a great job so far, but I guarantee you wards eight and seven will be affected at greater disproportions than anywhere else in the city. And I'm calling you right now from ward eight. So I want to tell you a little bit about my ward. So ward seven and eight in Washington, D.C. are the last two primarily Black wards in DC. DC has eight wards, similar to bureaus in New York City is what you can think of. And wards seven and eight are about 90% black. Um, the medium income is around 30 to $35,000 a year. The life expectancy is around 70 years old. And we make up 30% of the city's population. The rest of Washington, D.C., medium income is 90000 a year. Life expectancy is around 90 years old. Uh, so you can already see that we're not only making a third of the rest of the city, we've already lost 20 years off of our lives. Ward 7 and 8 has 160,000 residents, plus we have three grocery stores in Ward 7 and 8. 
you cross the bridge because like most south sides of, of every town we're separated by some type of infrastructure and in our case is a bridge you cross the bridge you'll see three grocery stores within feet of each other as you're crossing along with gas stations and hospitals and schools and parks and bike lanes and everything to have a decent dignified life like you're meant to be there like our god-given right to be Washington, D.C. used to be called Chocolate City because it was primarily uh, Black people for many years, and not just Black people, but very successful Black people. I'm sure that you guys have seen the news um, clips and articles about PG County, which is right here, a neighbor to Washington, D.C., the wealthiest Black county in America that's also uh, being ravaged by COVID-19. PG County is five minutes from me. I can drive down the street. If I was a good runner, I could run there. Um, and you know all of all of this to say what's going on is it's very very real and it doesn't matter if you're the wealthiest county you know the black county in america you're still being you're still dying at rates higher than everyone else in dc now blacks make up less than 50 percent of the population we're about 47 percent of the population we're at 80 percent of coronavirus deaths 47 percent of the population 47 percent of infections and 80 percent of deaths and majority of that is over here in Ward 8 and Ward 9, excuse me, Ward 8 and Ward 7. So my guidance to the mayor was because of everything that we already have, no hospitals, uh, uh, no gas stations, no grocery stores, lack of access to all the amenities we need, of course we're going to be affected the greatest. And I urged her, said, please throw your resources here before it comes here, because all of those essential workers are from Ward 7 and 8 who are going into the hot spots and coming back and bringing it back home. And if we don't have anything to protect us before you know it, it's going to spread out of control here and we don't even have the resources to fight it. And now like we've seen, it's spreading out of control. So for me, I just want um, to, to piggyback what the, what the last speaker said about how do we take this and transform America? How do we make a better union? And one of the things I had to end up doing as I've been home for nine weeks is going back and listening to some of President Obama's speeches from when he was running in 04. Because I had to remind myself, you, this country is a, an amazing country, you know? It is a lot of amazing people out here and we can be better. And listening to that his speech on a better state of the union, on what America could be, his, his first race relations speech, made me remember that there are a lot of people out, out there who understand and recognize the, the racism, the supremacy, the discrimination and inequities in our system, in our country, and they want to do something about it. And we have to take this time and do something about it because we're not going to have another period in history for a long time where we actually, where the world stands still. And one thing that I've always, you know, kind of grew up on, and it's something that my parents instilled to me, is that money is a social construct. And if the world owes each other's debt and we don't pay it, who's going to come get us? Are the, the space team from Mars going to come and say, Earth, you have not paid your debt to Earth? And if we can figure out how do we put real human lives at the center of our societies and at the center of our policies and at the center of our decision making and at the center of every single thing we do, and we value human life for what it is, 
then we can have the time to see that transformational change. And while I know that people are losing everything, their, their jobs, their money, their lives, their families, one thing that I do know, and I believe it was the president of Ghana who said this, is that the world has always figured out how to bring economies back together, but we have yet figured out how to bring the dead back. So knowing that the economy is a social construct, but life and death is organic and we can't bring it back, I just urge us to figure out how to come up with solutions to change things, to put the, the emphasis back on humans and all humans, and to look at what we can do to become more equitable and inclusive and to become the America that we always could have been and the world that we could have been. Because a lot of what we do here in the US is exported. As the world's leader, it's exported out. And so all of that hate, all of that racism, all of that supremacism, all of that, you know, uh, white Western male dominance, uh, uh, religion dominance, that's exported out into so many different forms. And we have to make the change as the world leaders. That's the fabric in the DNA of America. This is why we were started and make that change. And that change starts with the individual change. Because if you can't model that in your own behavior, it's no way you're going to be able to model that in the work that you do. Because at the end of the day, systems are run by people. Policies are developed by people. Communities are composed of people. And the world is composed of people. So everything else is static, is, is, is noise. How do we put the people first? And I would like, um, as I kind of end, and I know I didn't talk, you know, read any of my COVID-19 fun stuff that I had to talk about, but I really want to see how do we come together as women of color? How do we form a united front, a cadre of people who say we will not stand for this anymore? We don't want to go back to normal. We are not opening back up until we open it up for everybody. I'm not signing another move on about cancel student loans that for doctors and nurses, even though I really support it, until I see something about how do we guarantee a living wage for essential workers, all essential workers. How do we make sure that the Uber drivers, the cleaners, the, the service sector, the retail sector, the home health aides, the nursing aides, not only have the money to live a dignified life, but the resources to keep them and their families safe and also opportunities for their children to go on to higher education and to get all the dreams of everyone else's children. So I just implore us that, you know, as we think about everything that COVID-19 has done, take that anger, take that sadness, take that grief, and bowl it up into energy and do something about it. November 3rd is the most powerful day we have in this country. And we need to use it to bring about change from the local level to the state level to the federal level and take back our country. That's all I have to say. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Um, I'm reminded of uh, a concept that I recently came upon, which was something called moral imagination. And apparently it is the um, bravery and the courage to be able to see the world as it is um, in all of its ugliness. And even with that, in all of that pain, be able to imagine a world that could be and what that world looks like and having the bravery to be able to step forward into that future. And I think, Danilla, you've done a wonderful job to 
inspire us, to motivate us to take that step forward. Um, for our last speaker, I would like to introduce um, Joanne Michelle Ocampo. Um, she's going to be talking and wrapping up on sort of a more um, global perspective and, and uh, take us a couple steps back um, to the larger global public health system. A little bit about Joanne Michelle. Um, she's currently a doctorate, uh, doctor of public health student at uh, Columbia University, Mailman School of Public Health, where she is focusing on global public health and humanitarian crises. She was formerly at the Norwegian Institute of Public Health, uh, the Department of, uh, Department of Zootonic, Food and Waterborne Infections, and has worked with Georgetown University on NIH and CDC-funded projects related to disease surveillance and HIV research. Over the years, Ms. Ocampo um, has worked on a number of different projects across Europe and the United States with activities leading her to parts of Asia, West Africa. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Biology from Eastern Connecticut State University, a Master's of Science in Biohazardous Threat, uh, threat Agents and Emerging Infectious Diseases, and a Professional Certificate in Business Administration from Georgetown. Uh, Ms. Ocampo is an avid painter and a business owner, a diver, and with a cultural background, spanning, has a multicultural uh, multi background, spanning, spanning from Norway to the Philippines and to the United States. And so tonight she's going to be discussing, as I said before, uh, more of the view of COVID-19 and its impact on women of color from the lens of larger global public health system um, and discuss um, uh, basically a bunch of different things related to global public health crises, um, how uh, the utility of linear, linear thinking does not account for the geopolitical, uh, socio and economic complexities that inevitably face uh, that are inevitably faced by crises like COVID-19 um, and are really um, distorting the way that we usually piece together our global, our global public health picture. So with that, I'll uh, hand it over to you, Joanne. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. And um, well, I, um, I guess as the last speaker of the evening, I have the great privilege and also unenviable task really of following these amazing and inspiring uh, people that have gone before me. Uh, really, you all are why I do this. And I um, just wanna thank my co-speakers and any, anyone in this space uh, for joining us today to talk about these issues, challenges, as well as opportunities uh, from this lens. Uh, it's a very important one. Uh, just like Jacqueline mentioned, um, uh, my task today is to take a couple of steps back uh, and to view COVID-19 and its impact on women of color from the lens of our larger global public health uh, system. Uh, I am Norwegian and also Filipina, and I live in the United States. So I'm very multicultural and um, I have uh, two English first names and two Spanish uh, basically last names, uh, but no names originating from the islands where my family uh, is from. And so it, it has been a strange um, realization to get to uh, honestly, to, into my third decade of life before I actually understood that that's kind of problematic, that, uh, you know, I come from a culture where, you know, you, in, not for everyone, of course, but for me, I've often felt that I'm poor, you know, poor in the words of my own language and my own culture. And that, I think, is um, um, 
um, true and may resonate with a lot of people here today, whether that is, you know, sort of uh, experiences we have with uh, health things like COVID or personal experiences with the struggles that we've gone through. And I think that's um, ultimately what really ties us together today. Um, just like Jacqueline mentioned, um, so I have a, a quite an interdisciplinary background. Um, so in the world of biology, which I was in for quite some time, um, I focused on you know DNA and microorganisms, and I got really used to the notion of you know causal and linear thinking. You know that A causes B or A is associated with B. Um, but then I entered the really messy space of dealing with global health security, pandemics, uh, public health, and humanitarian crises, and I realized that that linear thinking, while it's useful, helpful, necessary, it really uh, falls short of painting the larger picture of uh, the systems operating around uh, phenomena like pandemics. Clearly understanding what risks are associated with disease, you know, it's, it's obviously important. Uh, and so knowing that linear thinking is, is great, but way too often do we forget that our science our technological tools, they're inevitably intertwined and complicated by the geopolitical, sociocultural, and economic context and surroundings that we've mentioned several times today. I mean, human health and disease do not occur outside of their social contexts. So, we, I mean, we can't ignore that COVID-19 is occurring right now during a uh, US election year, and that means things, right? Or that a perfect technical solution is absolutely useless if people refuse to use it. I mean, I think it was yesterday I read a New York Times uh, write-up uh, titled, titled something like, what good is a COVID-19 vaccine if half of the US won't use it? Um, and it's an, it's an important reminder that we add cultural meaning to diseases like COVID. This point is really of great importance, especially to this group, because our epidemiological and medical world owe much of their legacy to colonial medicine, which favored some people's health over others and left women of colors behind. Um, and appreciating um, this cultural meaning around diseases, I guess it's also true, not just in terms of social injustices that we, like we've talked about today, but also in the modern day US. I mean, we understand uh, diseases or diseases like COVID as a threat, as a war declaration, as an enemy. And this may be very different from understanding a disease as a, let's say a societal challenge or a communal problem, or just a risk of being a social animal. Our cultural interpretations, in other words, like framing our language, it really, really matters. And this matters a lot uh, on the global health policy level, because if you don't pick up on those nuances and we continuously interrogate those nuances, our policies will reflect that. And uh, we might miss important uh, opportunities by not sort of switching, turning, turning things around, and really thinking about what cultural meaning we're adding to what we're writing, or what we're publishing, or what we're saying, or what we're um, advocating. So I would also just like to say that the pandemic we're facing today is, you know, it's both breaking and uh, old news. While it's certainly true that we're facing a novel type of virus, um, you know, being the most, one of the most transmissible out there, the notion, however, of facing a new virus isn't new. I mean, historical accounts of the Black Plague, smallpox, and so on, 
they really reveal that there's a certain rhythm to the way that we as humans behaviorally react to the global occurrence of pandemics. We're often initially very reluctant to share or act upon news of a novel virus. And then later on, we follow up with a massive response. Uh, and this response is usually in the form of very strict policing, uh, surveillance, uh, and biomedical measures. We also end up, as you all know, uh, stigmatizing those associated with disease. Uh, we also stigmatize those associated with the perception of disease. Uh, for take the example of being East Asian right now. Um, so we, I, I would say that we shouldn't let, so we should let the novel side of COVID-19, as important as those novel sides are, uh, blind us to what we already know is likely to occur, as in the things that we as humans have a tendency to do, for example, stigmatize each other. Um, so I just don't want this to become sort of yet another orphaned lesson learned, right? I wonder who, how, and by when are we supposed to learn these past lessons? Like, do we have to wait to another pandemic to, do, to go through, through this again? Another common feature of pandemic response is also how all of a sudden our daily life changes. I mean, we're on Zoom. Uh, we're, we were supposed to meet in the city today and we're not. Um, and so this abrupt uh, shifting of lifestyles also includes like this, this notion of abrupt task shifting and where we basically move what we usually do over to something else that's focused on in this case COVID and we shuffle around people to different roles, right? We've seen thousands of clinical staff come in from all over uh, to help respond to the clinical needs in New York City. Um, and task shifting is also occurring in a lot of other sectors. So you've all read about the countless number of uh, new mask sewing production sites from sort of basements to real, you know, factories uh, that are popping up all, uh, all over the world, actually, really. Um, and in academia, where I'm uh, spending a lot of my time these days, we see journals shifting their regular public, uh, publishing focus to COVID. We're seeing funding, uh, research funding going straight to COVID. Uh, um, and so what I wonder about is, are there good ways for us to prepare for this abrupt task shifting, given that it usually does occur in these crisis scenarios? Uh, they might look differently, but the notion of task shifting, it really does happen. So I think uh, we might have some room for improvement uh, there as well. I think one also one of the biggest challenges from a larger global health uh, perspective is what has already been mentioned, and that is really how it's affecting everything else that's going on uh, in the world. Uh, and so really this, this way for us to piece together our larger global public health picture through monitoring and surveillance, it's absolutely affected by COVID right now. I mean, we're seeing an extreme shift in uh, people's health-seeking uh, behaviors. Some have you know, turned to telemedicine, others have had their annual checkups canceled. Uh, the dentist hasn't seen me for, I mean, we were supposed to meet like three months ago, I think, and every month we try to reschedule, right? Um, so all that to say, we are, um, there are less, we're seeing less avenues for accurate disease uh, reporting. And so the quality of our monitoring of global disease burdens in, in general is suffering from this and with all eyes on covid so with all eyes on covid we're 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 losing track to say it uh to say it bluntly we're losing track of how we're doing with other diseases and health outcomes and this picture is also likely to remain distorted for quite some time um this 
I like to call it this, this masking, this pandemic masking of other health outcomes begs the question, right? Like what direct and indirect effects of COVID are we likely to see? Uh, we've talked about a lot of really important subjects today, but also what are we likely to see in the coming months, in the coming years? And I think most importantly, how do we plan for what is to come, especially if those uh, health outcomes act should be preventable, at least in theory and should be in practice. Um, one thing also is really this, what I, what I would like to, to refer to as our blind spots in health data. We've, we've got a lot of recorded cases uh, in New York City uh, as we sit in one of the most resourceful places in the world. But what about the places that don't have access to test kits to, uh, we heard about that earlier today, but people who also don't have um, access to health facilities. What do we do about women of color living in these data blind spots and how do we get to them? How do we reach our most vulnerable? And I really think that one way is to include women of color in discussions like the one that we're having today. I think this is a great, great um, step forward to trying to reach those voices, to reach those perspectives and angles that we don't usually hear about. Doing so uh, and being here today, like it really does provide better representation and insights into these data blind spots. Uh, I mean, our div the diversity covered here today, the differences in opinions and the cultures and the great respect for all of them is so powerful. And I really think that sound policies on which to base you know, our programs and interventions, I mean, for sound policies, we must find ways, effective ways to account for our nuances. I mean, we have a shared humanity, but we're also very different. And so we need to figure out a way that we can leverage this to create powerful global health policies and interventions. And so lastly, I just wanted to mention um, that I truly believe that women and women of color across the globe hold the keys to understanding the knowledge and really that cultural treasure that can help transform and distill our fluffy global health policies down to implementable solutions. I mean, after all, about half of the, women, uh, the world's population are women. Um, and really, one last thing, few, very few things in the world help us see the commonality in humankind as pandemics do. I know we talked a lot about differences today, so I just wanted to complement what has been said today with this notion. I mean, pandemics along with you know, natural disasters, uh, hunger, uh, conflict and war, they really do show us that at the end of the day, we, as in our humanity, really do share similar fears, insecurities, and internal struggles. And while history is filled with disgusting social injustices, um, I do think that really it's this vulnerability, the, the existential crises that puts us uh, not on different, but really on equal footing. And I think in a divided world, I really hope that we can do a much better job at reminding ourselves and each other of our sh shared um, humanity and commonality moving forward. Thank you. Wow, okay. <laughs> this was amazing, everyone. <laughs>
Can everyone hear me? I think I'm losing one of my AirPods. So if you can't, just let me know. Um, I could stay here for another two hours and listen, but I don't think we have, we can't, unfortunately, unfortunately. This concludes the panel portion of the discussion, but I can confidently say that I believe that our panelists delivered on giving you a different perspective on leadership during this pandemic. And I think I even hear virtual applause going on right now because I saw some hand claps earlier, including myself. So panelists, you were phenomenal. Um, I'd like to take a moment to thank each of the panelists again for sharing their experiences and pearls of wisdom. I just recently heard an old Bantu saying, and it is, until the lioness tells her story, the hunter is the hero. WCAPS, WCAPS UK, and WCAPS NY are the platforms to tell our stories. Let's continue to take advantage of it and lift our voices by creating opportunities uh, to be heard and hone our experience so that we are creating the narrative that accurately reflects the impact and roles that people of color play in society and especially roles for the women of color. And I thank you again. And I will defer to Madam Ambassador Jenkins if you have any further closing remarks before we start the Q&A portion. Wow, I had nothing to say. I mean, that was amazing. <laughs> All of the panelists were amazing. I'm just sitting here like, wow, this is, you know, this has got to be seen and this has got to be heard. And, um, you know, I, I really don't have much to say. I just, you know, I can't follow any of you with, with the amazing statements that you that you all made and from all the different perspectives and for the different experiences and for the different angles. Um, you know, this is this has been great. Um, so we definitely have to do something like this again. <laughs> um, so I not, nothing to add, just thank you. Thank you all for such an amazing, uh, amazing presentation by each one of you, really. Okay, thank you. Uh, just a little bit of housekeeping before we move into Again, the Q&A portion, we will ask, we have a lot of questions, but we want to make sure that we have time to break out into the chat rooms. And each of the presenters will be hosting one of the chat rooms so that if you have any burning questions or you, weren't un, you were unable to ask a question during the Q&A, uh, feel free to make sure you uh, ask your question at that time. But I will take, I will go ahead and start with the first question of the three before we break out. And this question is for Anna Sophia and it comes from our very own Netta. Netta, raise your hand so people can see you. <laughs> and Anna, it is, can you speak to the history of midwifery? Different stigmas and how the limitations put on women of color have impacted the profession. Yeah, for sure. So um, if we go back to uh, slavery times in the United States, uh, midwives were the ones uh, taking care of women who were slaves, um, black women who were slaves, and also taking care of their communities after emancipation um, because they were segregated. So they couldn't go to the white hospitals. They couldn't get the white doctors. They And 
to be honest, there weren't many black doctors because they couldn't go to medical school, right? So that's why we have the historically black universities and colleges. Um, and and it and it was tough. It, it was sort of they they didn't have much of education. It was a, not saying I mean formal education. Not saying that they weren't educated, but um, they they were apprentices. Most of them. That's how you learn to be a midwife, um, a lay midwife. And in the early 1900s, um, when they wanted to sort of formalize the profession, uh, the nursing profession in the United States decided to stipulate some laws about who could be midwives. So for you to be a midwife, you had to know how to read. For you to be a midwife, you had to get a nursing degree. For you to be a midwife, you had to be associated with a clinic or hospital or, and, and, you know, Jim Crow and all of that helped that really well with, <laughs> with the black midwives, right? So um, little by little, uh, the obstacles that were placed in front of um, black women and women of color and natives too, because they had their own midwives, um, uh, they, they just couldn't uh, go to the schools. They couldn't get the licenses. They couldn't pay for the licenses. I mean, I still can't pay for the licenses. They're so expensive. Um, jokes, but, <laughs> but for real, it's, it's very expensive and it's a um, tough profession to go into. And, and so fast forward all the way now into the modern era that we're in. Um, currently, if you could take a poll of the midwifery workforce in the United States, and we're just a little bit, we're not in, we're not millions, but small thousands, 97% um, of the workforce is white. That's insane. The, um, the way to go to midwifery, there are several ways, but the way that I did is the certified nurse midwife part, which is you need a master's in science of nursing. And to do that, you need a bachelor's. And, and then you also need your registered nurse degree. And then you need your MSN. So there are a lot of obstacles and each obstacle is very expensive. Right. So um, and there aren't that many midwifery schools in the United States. So, it, I mean, I went to Yale School of Nursing and it was very, 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 very white. Um, and because uh, nursing is such a female dominated profession, they give a lot of scholarships to men and they they tend to uh, put men in a managerial positions they tend to and usually they're white men so it's just an interesting history where we've completely been ousted we've completely been put into a little corner right um we were told that what we learned and how we did midwifery wasn't wasn't real education it wasn't uh, real midwifery um, and, and it's sad, it's sad because we, we've lost a lot of granny midwives, which is what they were called. Um, and we've lost a lot of their knowledge, a lot of herbal medication. Um, we've lost that. And so we're trying with the birth workers in the United States, we're trying to get more people of color, um, more black women to back into the workforce and back into midwifery, um, through scholarships, through giving people opportunities. Right. And there are a lot of doulas who are uh, women of color and they always want to go into midwifery. But uh, a lot of the doulas, a lot of the midwifery students are usually um, second career folks because midwives aren't talked about in the general landscape of the United States. So it's, it's hard to make that change when you're in your 30s or 40s um, and to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to be educated. So there are funds for birth workers of color and, um, and there can be found on the internet if you're interested in supporting a midwifery student who is black or a person of color. Okay, great. Thank you, Anna. That was awesome.
Okay, next question. And I think this might be the last one that I can get in before we break out into the um, chat rooms. This question is actually for Jamila. Jamila, I hope you're still with us. I'm here. I just have some technology <laughs> issues. I don't have a really okay. good internet connection, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, no worries. Uh, this question is from Marsha, and she wants to know, how would responding to the, to the 2020 census impact the disparities that you spoke about earlier? Um, well, that's a really good question, um, and I will try to answer it as best as I can. Um, as you guys know, I don't work for a government. I think it's extremely important for our communities of color to take the census. I think it's important for us to actually have accurate numbers of uh, people of color, where, we're, where we are living, and to get an accurate sense of our communities. Now, you know, a lot of the kind of census commercials, at least that they play locally here, it's like, if you want your community to be served, you know, make sure you fill out the census because the census is supposed to, you know, determine population size and how much funding you're going to get. So I would say take it one step further. Don't only fill out the census, but also vote for your local leaders who are determining where those resources are going and hold them accountable. Hold them accountable to it. Say, listen, this is the census results when they come out. This is a development status. This is a socioeconomic status of our communities, of these communities. How come you're not doing what you're supposed to do? Why isn't it aligning? And so I think, you know, the census is definitely one step, but the next step is taking accountability and making sure we have leaders in place and start um, redistributing equity and, and our um, communities. Okay. I hope that answered it. <laughs> yeah. I actually have one more question for you, um, Jamila, if you don't mind. What can WCAPS do to move this country forward? Ooh, what can WCAPS do to move this country forward? I think um, WCAPS- This issue. This issue for, I think um, WCAPS and Ambassador Bonnie, I just wanna thank her so much because she actually, from, from the different networks that I'm in, Ambassador Bonnie was the first person that I can think of who started talking about COVID-19 issues affecting community of colors, um, community of color, not just in the US, but around the world at a very um, large scale before it started hitting all the different media outlets and before all of this data started coming out because she knew that it would happen because knowing the status of the country. So I think that we are in a very powerful position to be able to take this forward. And I think if we can come together and come up with real policy solutions and think about how can we look at some of the policies that are on the books right now that can actually be changed, you know? So what can be changed right now and what's not like in 30 years of changing behavior, changing mentality, waiting for people to die off and stuff like that. And I think if we could just come together <clears throat> WCAPs and other like-minded groups and associations and say, we are going to do policy analysis at the local, state, and federal level to show what are the discriminatory policies that affect the systems that are creating inequities, and this is how you change and affect it. And so one of the things I would love to see is if we can pull together a body of policy, because lobby groups have that, the corporations have that, these special interest groups, they have that, and they're the ones you know, basically writing the policies and legislation and getting what they want 
um, past. How do we do that for our communities? How can the African-American community and the Latina community and the Asian community and the white community come together and we say, we're gonna take our country back. We're gonna rewrite our policies to, to reflect the values of this country, to reflect the constitution of the country if you don't even wanna go with values. Just reflect the Constitution. And I think if WCAPS can take a real leading role in that, because so many of the wonderful members have that strong policy um, and legislation background, that would be you know, a very powerful tool and something that's just not happening, at least I'm not seeing at a very wide scale level. But how can we do that at the community, at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level? And I think a lot of change can really be happening at the local and the state level, even before the federal level. Great, thank you so much for your thoroughness. We appreciate it. Well, this actually concludes the um, Q&A portion of the program. We will now move into the chat rooms. Uh, before I let Netta work her magic and filter everyone into their respective places, I just wanna to defer to my co-chair, Jacqueline, just to see if she has anything to add or say uh, before we conclude. Uh, thank you so much. Quite honestly, I'm speechless. Um, I'm at a loss of words. I don't think there's any sort of way that I can, um, I can really express both how appreciative and thankful I am of um, everyone that's joined us and all the speakers who volunteered their time for us today, but also, um, uh, again, everyone Sort of bravery and being able to tackle these issues and, and envisioning a, a, a world for us forward. Um, so uh, thank you so much for to everyone uh, for being with us here tonight. Um, what I'm going to do is uh, actually I think I'm going to defer. Uh, I have the I have the host thing now, but what we're going to do is um, is break up into sessions um, uh, and. any sort of um, uh, burning, desiring ideas that you have or questions that you have, you can talk amongst each other. 